Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Someone from Minneapolis is on that phone. All right. So if you want to sit down here, okay. I'm going to see how you sound before sure. they start the okay. actual process. You can pick that up and just say hi. Hi, it's Corey. Hi, Corey. It's Krista. Oh, Krista. Wow. What an honor to talk with you. <laughs> the honor is mine. It's so great to hear your voice. I'm sorry that you have to be, uh, you know, on the phone. That you don't. You don't have headphones, do you? Or just. I, I, I'm sitting here on the phone, but okay. I, I, that's no problem whatsoever. Okay. You just have to promise me we'll get a chance to connect in person one day. I'm such a fan. Yeah, no, I would love that too. Um, yeah, you know, um, I maybe we'll talk about this later that we're both Star Trek fans, I think. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, I think of like, you know, the, the ISDN interview where you're both in headphones is kind of like... Spock, you know, my yeah. mind to your mind, my <laughs> thoughts to your thoughts. <laughs> yes, if only if only mind melds were, uh, were were truly possible. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think Chris is uh, my colleague on the other side of the glass. I see him twiddling. Do you have any questions for me before we start? No, I'm just so excited. Uh, you, you, I, I listen to you all the time and have just found some of your interviews so incredible. From the first one that I think really turned me on to you was when you did. Years ago, with uh, David Brooks and hmm. DJ Eon, and and uh, that wasn't so long ago. It just feels like it. <laughs> yeah, yes. And then uh, I thought your Tanahasi Coates interview, yeah. live interview, was was incredible. And yeah, it was just, amazing. Uh, obviously, you, you you did with John Lewis, who's my hero. I thought that was so special. Yes, I when I read you, I've been reading you. Uh, you know how moving it is to be with him. I went on that. Have you gone on that? Uh, that pilgrimage that they do, that he does? Yes, I did. Oh, yeah. That, that's just so incredible. Did they do it? Are they doing it every year? Did they do it last year? Yeah, he does it every year. Okay. Yeah, I think I'm going again this year. Oh. Uh, this coming year, yeah. I'd, and, I'd uh, actually love to do that again. It was just an incredible experience. Um, okay, we want to stop talking because we're in danger of saying something that matters. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think... We can go. We have the thumbs up. All right. Great. You sound great. You don't sound like you're on the phone. That makes me happy. Um, hold on. I do not. Okay. I do not. I was asked a question if I had my cell phone on me. Oh, okay. Um, so I think you know where I'm going to start. Uh, I am curious about how you would begin to talk about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. However, how are you think of that now? Well, I, I'm happy that I had a... Uh, traditional grounding in my in, in a small black church in northern New Jersey, in a very sort of traditional framing. But you know, James Baldwin has a saying that children are never good at listening to their elders, uh, but they never fail to imitate them. Yes, and, and <laughs> yeah. I think so much of my <laughs> philosophy. Uh, grew out not from my parents' words, but how they encountered life. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was—it was a blessing in a sense to grow up. Um, uh, in a, this incredible town that uh, we were the first black family to move in. in of fact, Harrington Park, New Jersey. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, but but my, my parents' life up until sort of bringing me up in that town had so many stories around the kitchen table of things that were surprising to me as a boy growing up 
to hear such stories of awful bigotry and discrimination uh, and hatred. Yet my parents had this view of this sort of indefatigable love and uh, love of people, love of this country that was really shaping to me about how you encounter darkness and what do you do, mm-hmm. how when you encounter uh, discouragement or defeat, what do you do? And those are building blocks I now realize as an older adult uh, uh, that are so um, fundamental to my f- own personal philosophy and my sort of orienting to the world, to the universe, and to uh, religion. So, um, you know, we're, we're, and I've, you know, I've been reading um, a lot of the things you've written, and but I, I don't know that I've just seen this this question explored in this way, or I probably just have missed it. Like, you know, so where this this orientation you have, this way you have of being in the world, moving through the world, that you also that was that was so imprinted by your parents. At what point do you see that the roots of that becoming something leading you into politics as a place to express that? You know, even talking about manifesting love, like when did this become the direction that you would take with that? Well, I, I think a lot of life is about confronting fear and, and which is a, such a controlling force. Mm. And it's a fear is often the ignition point for um, um, bigotry or hatred or conflict. And when it affects you on a personal level, I think it can be very um, stultifying. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have a life that was very different than my parents. You know, my, mm-hmm. my dad would tell me, you know, boy, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. Mm. And to have parents that grew up in segregated environments and poverty and then gift to my brother and I a, a very different reality and then have that lead to college and graduate school and the like. Really, at the end of that road, I um, decided I would, you know, uh, as my mom would say, what, uh, you know, what, Corey, think about what you would do if you knew you couldn't fail despite your fears and insecurities. And, hmm. and it was that point in my life I made a decision to move into what is and was especially then a very dangerous neighborhood with the understanding that you know, as my father said, you know, you can't pay back all the blessings that were given to you in generations before, but you've got to pay it forward. And it was in this environment where I was following my wildest dream, which was to be a man, to be like a man named Jeffrey Canada, who runs something mm, in mm-hmm. Harlem. He was sort of the hero of mine coming out of law school. Okay. And how I thought I was going to organize my life, but like he did. In fact, if you read his great book, Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun, um, which talks a lot about fear and what that does, the corrupting force that it is. But how he chose the toughest, a tough neighborhood in Harlem to begin just being of service, of a community. So did, did you read that what, when you were, while you were at law school? You were at, you yes. were at Yale Law School, is that right? Yes. And I, I decided at Yale that I was going to go find who are the people that most inspire me. Uh-huh. And um, because if I'm trying to live my greatest life, go to the light, to the people that, that most um, excite me and inspire me and are doing the kind of things that most call to my spirit. And for me, I always found those people in the humblest of places, uh, in the, in tough communities. And, you know, I, I loved, uh, a book I read called in search of my mother's garden by, um, Alice Walker, where she mm-hmm. says, mm-hmm. talks about, it's a chapter where she's giving advice to revolutionaries in this case, black revolutionaries. And she says, the real revolutionary is always concerned with the least 
glamorous stuff. Hmm. The raising a child's reading level from third grade to fourth, the filling out food stamp forms for folks because they have to eat revolution or not. The real revolutionary is always close enough to the people to be there for them when they're needed. Hmm. And so, you know, I went and found an amazing guy who started a legal clinic uh, named Jeff Lasden, Doug Lasden, started a legal clinic in a homeless shelter. Um, uh, who was do, running something called the Urban Justice Center. I found Jeffrey Canada, organizations like The Door in New York or um, like Covenant House uh, that's in Newark, New Jersey, and just found these inspiring souls who were mm. doing uh, re- what I consider to be real work. And so I picked a tough neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey. Is that, uh, that when you moved into Brick Towers? Well, first I moved right across the street from these high-rise projects and okay. rented a room and a house. Um, and my first moments there, first hours there, days there were quite humbling. Uh, I, I'd worked everywhere from East Palo Alto to East Harlem by that point and seen right. tough neighborhoods. Right, right. But yeah. now I was living in one mm. that was almost like a scene from a movie that that you know the drug dealing was sort of around the clock, and I was living next to an abandoned building that was being used for drugs. And I would see these scenes of cars from Mercedes to city vehicles to people walking up. Uh, I've done later done research on the drug trade there, and I found out that they were really selling high quality drugs for discount prices. And I entered in the middle of it. There was gunshots, and 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 everything I perceived was sort of intimidating. In fact, when I moved my stuff was moving myself into this room. Uh, my, my childhood friend was helping me move in. We came back to my car and my stuff was stolen uh, out from the car. And it, it was then that, as you've heard countless times, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Um, it was then that I started meeting these uh, very transcendent grassroots leaders. And one of them was the tenant president across the street from me who had no patience for me in the beginning and just saw me as and that uh, was that Virginia Jones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so um so you were commuting at some point from Newark to New Haven, which is not really a commute, right? Like it could be a three or four hour drive. Um, um but it also strikes me that it's not it's not just that you chose Newark like um kind of a scientific choice. I mean, you, you, you've said that your father loved Newark. I feel like, you know, was was Harrington Park kind of part of Greater Newark? I, I was going to look this up, and then I, I thought I could just ask you. You know, Harrington Park is, a, is maybe 25, 30 miles away, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a world disconnected. It, okay. um, you know, uh, New Jersey has these very particularized communities that um, we're, most people don't realize we're one of the most segregated states in the nation. I think the data shows about the fifth most segregated state for blacks, the fourth most segregated state for Latinos. And Newark and Harrington Park literally took my parents and civil rights activists fighting and constructing a ruse for us to buy the house, having a white couple ultimately pose as them to overcome the real estate steering at the time. Yeah. And, and so it was this incredible bedroom community um, that was so nurturing, but very different than Newark, New Jersey in the uh, 70s, 80s, uh, and early 90s when the city was really going through um, some difficult times, as many American cities were coming yeah. out, of, uh, out yeah. of the riots. And not just coming out of the riots, but we, we all know that urban spaces were, were through overtly bigoted and, and, and racist laws designed to be these pockets of poverty, redlined, uh, underdeveloped, underinvested, walled in in many ways, uh, metaphorically. And um, 
Uh, and so there was there was the connection I had though was that my parents raising four uh, raising two African American boys uh, in a white community, as my father jokingly called us, the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. <laughs> um, my father and mother really wanted my brother and I to 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 keep connections to black community uh, okay. and, a, and, a, and, a, and a sort of a consciousness of struggle that comes from that and unfinished. American business that comes from that. So whether it was, you know, going to Newark for cultural events or black church or what have you, my father seemed to just indulge as a guy who his entire life was brought up in a segregated community. He, he found Newark, the sounds of Newark, this, the radio, the WBGO, the radio station, all of these things were, as I saw us driving around in a car with him, were sort of food for his soul and, and nurturing to him. So for me, I, I had a sort of a spiritual connection from family, friends that lived there to uh, visits there throughout my, my youth growing up. So I want to, I want to talk to, I want to talk, I want to kind of get more into Newark, but <clears throat> I kind of want to pull back the lens and just ask you this large question, because as you say, I mean, a lot of what Newark, like, you know, I, uh, when you write about Newark and speak about it, there's this very particular love of particular people, right, and particular energy and place. Um, and then in another way, Newark is, is a microcosm of, as you said, um, dynamics that a lot of cities have gone through and are going through. I kept thinking, I was reading you tell stories from it about being in Youngstown, Ohio a couple of years ago and somebody saying to me, this is this is a place that is dying and being reborn at the very same time, mm. which is which is very much the story of our time. It's the story of our institutions and our places. Um, so so here's my question: Like, uh, if if uh, if an alien landed in a spaceship, perhaps built by Elon Musk right. uh, tomorrow, um, and asked you to start to start telling the story of our time, like, how would you? start to do that? Where, where would you begin? Well, I confess that my, my view of the universe, the world, comes from a very American perspective. Yeah. Uh, I've had the blessings now, especially as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, to travel the globe and see um, lots of different places. But my, so much of my, my view is colored by this story of America, which I do think is a story of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people forget uh, that we're the oldest constitutional democracy on the planet Earth, uh, that we were the first nation to profess that we're not going to be founded or established because of obvious connections one to another. I mean, at the time that this country was founded, German was a was a very commonly spoken uh, language. You know, we weren't a theocracy being founded because we all prayed alike. We weren't a... Um, uh, so we didn't surrender to this divine rights of kings and queens. We put ideals into this universe mm-hmm. and that are bigger than the humans that put them in. Remember, our founders couldn't help but write into the documents their bigotry and uh, their frailties. Right. I mean, bigger, we, bigger also than our capacity to anywhere near um, achieve them, meet them. Yeah, if you Still. read the Declaration of Independence now, <laughs> yeah. you, see, you see the Native Americans are referred to as savages yeah. and women – are clearly, uh, by their omission, a second-class citizenry. You know, Stokely Carmichael, I love how he used to always say, constitute, constitute. I can only say three-fifths of the word. Mm -hmm. But but the powerful story that I think reverberates in this nation is that 
you have this unusual commitment amongst our people to these principles and ideals and to each other, um, an irrational commitment almost uh, to make real these principles and to be willing to sacrifice self. Uh, you may never live to see the fruit of your of your labor, the early the early suffragettes, the early uh, labor organizers, the early um, uh, abolitionists would never live to see the the, the harvest that they um, made possible. But this incredible story in this country of people who encountered the most wretched conditions, but still seem to have this undying belief manifested through hopeful action. Um, to make real on the promise of this country. Yeah. And, and, and so that's sort of the story that I like to tell, which is that the, the story of this nation is really a story of the, uh, an evolu- evolution of spirit that more and more people were believing in things that now we take for granted. But back in the day, they seemed with, not even within our grasp. Um, and, and, but right now, and I just mean globally, right? Not just, I mean, there are manifestations of this in the States, but it's such a, it's such a mixed bag in terms of uh, uh, soaring aspiration and soaring creativity and also um, the opposite of those things. Um, you know, I like, I like the image that, uh, that I actually got from some technologists and evolutionary biologists that like, that, that the, that the, you could, that a picture of the, of the globe right now would look like the teenage brain, right. which is which is on the one hand like full of this like unbelievable energy and potential and creativity, and also at the very same time, all at the same time, just like recklessness and this capacity yes. for self destruction. Um, yeah, and so you know, I was, so I'm I was reading this article, which I know you have strong feelings about, uh, that was in Esquire. Um, about you, um, and but it's like it's one way to tell the story, right? And in fact, it is a is a dominant narrative, right? I mean, this Esquire piece talked about you moving to Brick Towers in Newark and said and called that one of Newark's nastiest human warehouses, right? And so then there's this there's these, these sentences: lousy housing, check, rampant unemployment, you bet, shitty schools, bingo, gang warfare, my yes. I leave Newark and feel nothing, this is the journalist, and feel nothing except happy that I don't live there, a state of spiritual and moral zombiehood that belies all lip service, however heartfelt. So, so, yeah, so I was like, so let's say that Alien had read that article. <laughs> you know, like, how do you, how do you tell the story of what you see and what you know and what you've experienced and these people you love and the healing that is also happening alongside the devastation? And how does that all work together with this other way that this can be seen? Well, I question people a lot about what we say about other people yeah. says more about who we are yeah. than who they are. Yeah. And it was that moment when I first started in on Martin Luther King Boulevard with Miss Jones where she checked me hard and she said, you know, describe the neighborhood. And I described it like I did to you, the drug dealing, the projects, the abandoned building. And she just said to me in a very curt way, boy, you need to understand that the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees darkness, despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you see hope, opportunity, if you're stubborn enough to every time you open your eyes see love in the face of God, then you can be a change agent here. Then you can make a difference. And it was this monumental sort of moment for me at the beginning 
of my life that, y- you know, you have choices. Your life is not just a, a stimulus response. That, that space between stimulus and response, y- you can make powerful choices. And, and, and even in the way you describe a, a person, uh, describe a child, you can mm-hmm. see them as, their, as a collection of their, uh, in, uh, of their inhibiting agents, toxic soil like we have in Newark, toxic air like we have in Newark and so many other cities where people think Flint, Michigan is an anomaly. It's not. There's yeah. like 3,000 jurisdictions with twice the blood lead levels, asthma rates for urban areas off the charts, kids growing up in toxic environments. You can, I could go through all the maladies and describe the children as a collection of those, or I can see their divinity and see their potential. And what the folks I fell in love with in Newark and I've always found, this year has shown me this about our country as a whole, that it's often during the darkest times or in the darkest places, that if you look with not a cynical eye, which is a spiritually toxic state, cynicism, but if you see with the hopeful eye, which is a choice, um, which is a muscle, hope, uh, you can actually start to discern incredible light. And that's what I found in this neighborhood that I still live in, um, the only United States senator that lives in a inner city African-American community, low income. I think the median income is about $14,000 per household. But I tell you what, that guy who I hope to bump into one day who wrote that Esquire article, (laughs) if if I said to him from the time of that article, which I can't remember if it was around 2000, that by leading into 2020, our city will have shed so many of those devastating trends that now Newark is seeing its population grow for the first time in 60 years. Businesses moving their national headquarters back to our city. The schools, the data just came back from a Harvard study. We're, we're the number one yeah, city. I saw that, that yeah. doc that demonstrated that progress, in fact, has been made, that documents in ways we take seriously. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and, not, just, yeah. and uh, not just any progress. I mean, we, we were ranked Washington University study, the number one city in America for beat the odds schools, high poverty, uh-huh. high performance. One of the top three. I mean, I can go through the things that I've said this to journalists in my community. Like, if I told you that we were going to do this, you would have said this was impossible, correct? And they said yes. But as you know, as you know, journalism as a craft, and I'm, you know, I'm in this world, um, is about, is very sophisticated about analyzing what is failing and what is flawed and what is catastrophic, right? And uncovering uh, corruption and devastation. Um, And that also, as we're learning, is what rivets our brains. Oh, I'm sorry. I have this. Ah. I have this. Sorry. Excuse me. I've got a little technical thing going on here. No worries. Um, So, um, and in a sense, I also feel that politics, especially when it's not working very well, (laughs) um, is more more about fixing problems um, than it is about, like, I don't know. I feel like what you're describing, you've been using this phrase a lot, like seeing the darkness and walking towards the light, right? Um, It's it's more about the darkness than about the light. Uh, And... um, so I mean, how do you like? How do you work with that, right? I mean, how, or how do you how do you offer up for citizens to be working with that, um, and and taking just taking um, taking what's going right as seriously as we take what goes wrong? 
Right? We just have well, these impulses now, these reflexes. Yeah. And I do believe it's a, it, there's a cynicism that is in all of us that it has to be exercised. But it's and, cultivated, right? Like it's it, cultivated, it's reinforced all the time by yes. politicians as well as journalists. You know, I, I Camden, New Jersey had this awful um, Rolling Stone article about it five or so years ago. And I told the mayor at the time, "Let us, we're going to save this article because they they cannot see help but see what I see. That they can't see what I see about this city of Camden, which again is going to be a story." And I I did an interview with Rolling Stone recently, and I said to them, "Here are some data points about what's happening in Camden in three or four years. I need you to come back to the city and do a retrospective." I, I just think, and 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 one of my favorite books um, ever is "The Fire Next Time" by mm-hmm. James Baldwin, yeah. which is a painful, painful analysis of what's going on in America in the 1960s. But then he ends this book with these two pages that are, that he actually got criticized. They called him Pollyannish. Right. <laughs> that, that, that because he ended this book with these profound callings to the, com- like I always say, America, we have common pain, but we often lose a sense of common purpose. Mm. And here is Baldwin who just talked about these fissures in our society that ends this book by calling to blacks and whites to be like lovers, he writes, and to insist upon and create a new consciousness uh, um, where he says that America, that, that he goes, human history is, and black American history, Negro American history is in particular, a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. And, and this is what I, I operate on every single day. I want to go to the, the places people think are wretched places. I want to be in prison with women and men. That's why I try to visit them often. I want to go to places of poverty from, from uh, Duplin County, pig country in North Carolina, where the respiratory problems, suffering from industrial hog operations, to Cancer Alley in, in Louisiana, to Camden and Newark. Because I think these are the most exciting places where you see grassroots Americans, be they from Appalachia uh, to the Central Valley uh, farm workers in California, who demonstrate to me what is great about America. Folks who still know the power, again, between stimulus and response lies human choice. And in darkness, they choose light. In meanness, they choose kindness. Uh, in, In hatred, they choose love. And that choice is far more powerful uh, Alice Walker says the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I am the physical manifestation of these individual choices that were made by so many people um, to, to choose light over darkness. And so I, I know that cynicism, especially in politics, um, a, a senior New Jersey politician once said to me, before I was in politics, if I helped an elderly woman across the street, I was a good person. Now that I'm in politics, I'm just trying to get her vote. Right. And, and, and <laughs> right. there's a cynicism that comes with being in the profession I've chosen, which was my own ego getting in my way when I hesitated to run for my very first office because I didn't like politicians. And when I started realizing that this this civic space which just by people like me who, who don't want to get involved or who turn their back on or say that's just politics, we are making a political decision that is contributing to the very things that we are criticized, contributing to the negativity that we are criticizing. And yet if we can choose in this civic space that is all of us are political actors, whether we agree or not, mm. to bring forward a spirit that has been the best of America, a spirit of kindness, a, the spirit of choosing 
good over bad, uh, to, to choose not to be standing on the sidelines and spectators, uh, but to choose to bring it within this specific space, a, a sense of spiritual evolution, as I described our country earlier, I, I think then great things happen and they have happened. And I believe, especially right now, I believe that, that they're going to be happening again with more frequency. Um. I'm, I I love that you use the language of spiritual evolution. We'll talk some more about that. I mean, in your your book United, which actually is a wonderful book, I guess it was published in 2013. It's really fantastic. It deserves to be read. Um, still, right? It, books books don't die. There it is. It's in the live in the world. Um, you, you one of the things you do in there is you you call out people who have been your teachers, people and you people you honor, as you say, and there's, you say to honor someone is not just about venerating them, it's about learning from them. Um, so Virginia Jones is one of those people. And another person, I, I do want to like come to the L word, love, which you keep using, and which I feel is really surfacing in our life together. Again, like it's such an interesting contrast to that narrative of anger. Um, and dismay. Um, another teacher you point out is Frank Hutchins, who yes. worked with the Greater Newark HUD Tenants Coalition. And one thing you say about Frank Hutchins um, is he loved people. He saw people. Use that word of seeing people. So talk a little bit about what you learned, like how that quality of seeing people makes a difference. Yeah. I, my early days as an activist, I felt like I was in such in a hurry. And as a lawyer and seeing these slumlords in Newark, and I was just wanted to get to the conclusion of fixing things, you know, like, you know, uh, get the guy to fix the heat. Um, but Frank was really one of those people that taught me to slow down, um, to stop, to, to look a person in the eye, to feel their heart beating with the same blood, to recognize their, their divinity, to see their light. Um, even if they're screaming at you, um, mm -hmm. to, to think and to repeat in your own heart and mind, I love you, even as they're screaming to you. And that's so, so much, isn't it, what John uh, Lewis talks about, like what they learned and practiced before they put themselves into those completely dangerous situations, that it was precisely those people who were beating you that you had to decide you could love. That, that is the test of love. I mean, there's, there's, there, it is so easy to love people who agree with you, but the real test comes to, to love someone who who you disagree with. And our political culture right now has become so toxic. I, 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 Chris Christie, who is a friend of mine, my governor, uh, who I disagree with vociferous, I could write a dissertation on our disagreements. <laughs> and I remember telling him that I watched the presidential debates when he was standing with all these other Republicans and they were castigating him for the sin of hugging Barack Obama. And that hug happened at the yeah. during our Hurricane Sandy, where the Air Force One flew in. The, the the governors who's wept with other residents, and 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 here you have the president descending the steps, and the two guys hug. And I'm a hugger, and by the way, it wasn't even a great hug. It was one of these <laughs> awkward male hugs, you know, where you're not right. sure what to do with your hands. Um, but but they were castigating him for the sin of hugging someone. So we've gotten to a point now where mm -hmm. our political culture is so so hateful that even human contact when i hugged john mccain when he came to the senate floor where we didn't when we didn't know how he was going to vote on health care and and people's lives were potentially in the balance he had a cancer designation he came back to the mm -hmm. senate floor and i hugged him and by the time i got home that night i was getting pilloried on twitter by fellow progressives 
for hugging a man they said that was a baby killer or things like that. If we have lost the point where we can't even see the humanity in someone else, we've so demonized them that physical contact, then there's no hope for us as a country. And there's no way we can come together and work together and find common ground. That this country will be torn left or right and, and forget about the urgency of, of, of forward progress. And so I, I, I get criticism for talking about love in the political space. Do you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, even from one of my close friends, I gave a speech um, who just said to me, you know, you need to sound tougher and you need to sound. And, and the way I talk about love, I, I don't want to give anybody the, um, <laughs> the misconception that the kind of love I'm talking about is easy, is soft. Mm -hmm. I mean, the kind of love I'm talking about is the love of freedom riders, the love of uh, uh, these young teenage boys who storm beaches in Normandy. Uh, I mean, it's the hard love. It's the difficult love. Uh, it's not an easy way. Um, it's hurtful. I always say if this country hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, love does mm -hmm. get angry. Do you, remember, uh, do you know that speech that King gave in 67? Um to the uh, to SNCC and he and he said he's there's a part I was just reading it where he there's a part where he says you know people complain that I talk about love too much right oh, and, he, and he says and he says but I'm going to keep talking about love and I'm not talking about emotional bosh I'm talking about a strong demanding love yes. It is not sentimentality. No, and he not. says also there, he says, I have seen what hate does to people, right? Hate destroys people and distorts people. And hate, oh, that's the one where he says, hate is too great a burden to bear. Yes, I know that quote. Well, yeah. I, I remember I was at a Humane Society event where there was all this great energy of compassion. I mean, extending compassion to all living creatures. And um, I was at a table where a person came up to me who was so angry at Paul Ryan, and then they showed me the tweet that was so incongruent with the spirit of the time and just so mean and vicious towards him in a personal way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it just so shocked me to think that, you know, King, again, his eloquence, darkness can't drive out darkness. Yeah. Hate can't drive out hate. And, and this is a time where our country needs a more courageous love, needs a more daring empathy this is really a moment where we're going to define our culture, I think, in the next generation. Because I, I, you know, I'm talking to friends of mine that have children that are 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, whose worldview is being shaped by world events at this time. Yeah. And, and I, I do believe this has got to be a time where we rekindle the fires of, of, of fealty, where we understand that those last words of the Declaration of Independence, where they said, if this country's going to make it, if we're going to be able to pull this off, we must mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Mm. And, and that's, that's, that word sacred to me is, is what is needed now, this sort of understanding that these are sacred spaces between us, and they need to be fueled and, in, and injected with an unapologetic, courageous, daring uh, love. Um, you know, that uh, that also just brings me back to the way you define honor, that you don't just honor somebody by venerating, you honor by learning from them, which is not even something we walk into, spa into civic spaces ready to learn. But, um, uh, you know, I want to – Frank Hutchins, again, one of the things you said about him, about what you learned from him um, – 
is that in this quality of seeing people and loving people and that being non-negotiable, right, in any circumstance, that he was fighting against a, the common notion of tolerance, which, which many generations now since the 60s have grown up with. And, it, you know, maybe it was a baby step, right? But you said what we have to do is move beyond tolerance to love. So, you know, to me, this is in the category of this idea of evolution, um, of this spiritual evolution, civic spiritual evolution. I mean, talk about that, about what it is we've been working with, the limitations of tolerance, again, yeah. and like how that anchors what it means to, yeah. for love to be a public thing. Right. I, I, I sort of rankle it when people begin have, and I've seen this evolve over my lifetime, where, where um, people sort of herald this idea that we are a nation of tolerance. Yeah, it's just so and, small. And it, I'm like, that, God, that is, that is a cynical state of mind that that's mm. what we're just going to stomach each other's right to be different. Mm. And, if, and, and basically tolerance says if you disappear from this face of this earth, I'm no better or worse off because I was just tolerating you mm. like I tolerate a cold. But, but what we are called to as a country by those founding documents I, I quoted to you, by the examples of the people we literally build monuments to on the, on the mall here in Washington, is to, to go to a higher level. Tolerance is a floor. We've been called to, to get to the roof as mm. a country. Mm. And, and, and what, to, what tolerance says is, I'm just stomaching your right, but love says, I see your worth. I see your value. It, it, it says that, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks, Brooks, who said, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Hmm. This idea that we belong to each other, that your success is integral to my success, that if your child fa fails, I'm bereft of their genius, their innovation, their artistry. But if your child is elevated, my children and grandchildren will benefit from their teaching, from their wisdom, from their light. And understanding that the, this ideal of rugged individualism and self-reliance, that's great in this country. And I love those themes. But the story of America is a story of this love, this understanding that together we're going to do something. Rugged individualism didn't map the human genome. Rugged individualism didn't get us to the moon. Rugged individualism didn't overcome the kind of poverty that used to inflict, be inflicted upon the large scale of our senior citizens. Mm. We, we are a nation which is a story of this compassion and empathy that could, that could remind people that the lines that divided them were nowhere near as, as, as strong as the ties that bound, bound them. And when we come together as a country, uh, 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 showing that patriotism, which is love of country and you can't love your country without loving your country, men and women, when we manifest that kind of patriotism, that kind of civic love, um, that's when we do things that light up the world, that light up the planet Earth. And, and that's what I feel like we need to get back to as a country, uh, as opposed to this short-termism, uh, this, this uh, tolerance, uh, uh, this uh, sort of brinksmanship, gamesmanship that is about winning the day as opposed to uh, 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 winning this generation. That that rugged individualism also infuses um, how we do social change, even how we do social healing, right? I mean, even when you become the young mayor of Newark, you know, people start calling you the savior of Newark, right? Yeah. We're always looking for the hero. Um, and I suppose that's also 
probably primally, you know, I mean, somehow we're hardwired for that. But I don't know. I, 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 one of the things I, I, uh, that's interesting to me in, in a lot of your writing and, and some of the interviews you've been giving lately is that you, you know, you kind of, t- I, I don't know if you use this word embarrassed, but like, you know, that you're, you have this amazing, you have all the, all the great right credentials at this point in your life, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, Stanford, Yale, um, Oxford, uh, mayor, senator. Um, but that that doesn't tell the story of the most meaningful things that have happened, the things that have formed you. Um, but we do that, right? That's, that's also how we approach social change, uh, with a lot of pedestals and with these kind of metrics and looking for what is accomplished and what is solved. Um, I think, and I suppose, you know, becoming a senator, um, you know, you just, you keep taking yourself into more and more places where, where that is the way people see you and expect of you and also see the world. I wonder how you work with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable for me because I, I, tend to see things um, from the, through the eyes of the people that live in my community. And, you know, I, w- I wish we were doing this interview as we were walking around Newark and you could see how people razz me and don't see uh, any, you know, title or, um, or, or external uh, often things that we seem to revere that have nothing to do with the truth of a person or what's important to them. And in many ways, it's the reason why I wrote the book, one of the sort of subtexts I hope that run through it is that uh, that despite these external um, badges of accomplishment, it really was despite those that I was taken by some of the humblest people um, in our country who ended up to me being these sagacious souls who are were the luminaries in my life more so than professors uh, uh, at, high, at these universities. You know, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark. And I, I fear that we're still struggling with Ellison's invisible man problem. Uh, in, this, in this sense, we, we render so many of our fellow Americans invisible um, and, and fail to see uh, the truth of the matter. Because uh, we're looking for heroes in a certain, of a certain... We, we lionize the wrong things. Yeah. Um, and we've become a, a society about celebrity and not significance, mm-hmm. position and not purpose, um, and are, are failing to sort of understand the wealth of who we are because we use all the wrong metrics to measure wealth. Um, and uh, it, it's troublesome to me. And uh, in this invisibility, um, I think it, 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 it makes problems fester. Um, and, and, and weakens uh, uh, us as a whole. And I'm hoping, uh, I get very uncomfortable, um, you know, Ella Baker, who was such a great activist in the civil rights movement, someone who was not, um, not uh, elevated as this African-American woman when so much of the movement was sustained and led by black women, but yet you have these um, figures like King and Malcolm X who, who, yeah. who get a lot of the oxygen uh, yeah. when that, if you study the movement, there were a lot of other heroes and, you know, she was one of the people. Uh, and again, it's nice to see how quotes sort of come back and Obama brought these words back. But, you know, th- 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 she would be one that would be saying that, you know, we are the leaders we've been looking for. You are the leaders we've been looking for. Yeah. And for us to look out for a savior uh, 
and expect someone to save us or someone to rectify this problem, it forgets those like cute little two, 10 two-letter words that I learned as a child, which are simply, if it is to be, it is up to me. And I'm not going to give my proxy, my social change proxy over to somebody else um, um, that I've got to sort of understand and recognize that my role in all of this um, and in many ways, the political leaders were the last people to move. You know, the, the, the saying that's almost tired down here in D.C., which is that change doesn't come from Washington. Yeah. It comes to Washington. Uh, and, and I'm hoping we can get back to the elevation of uh, the things that matter to us most, to our families, the values, the ideals, the places and the people um, that are are the, are the sustaining elements of this civic life of America and not try to wait for some heroes or to point to some heroes or who's going to be the 2020 person for the Democrats. Who's going to yeah, be Yeah, right. That? Well, I think what you're naming also is it's such an important point that it's not just that setting up heroes and revering celebrity um, is a distortion of who those particular people are or what they could possibly achieve. It's it diminishes. It, it does have this. It, it also has the effect of making everyone else feel less powerful. Yes. And powerless, and, in fact. Yes. And and even my reading of heroes, because I was born after King. I was born um, after Fred Shuttlesworth. I was uh, uh, born after the heroism of of. The, the, the Children's March in Birmingham and so many of the chapters of history that, that sustained me growing up. But I started loving, I don't know why I found it so enriching and empowering to me to learn about the frailties and imperfections um, and, the, and the, uh, the unpopularity of, of a lot of these people as they, as they try to lead in, within this movement. Yeah. And, and, and when you start seeing the texture and the, um, uh, the, the rough edges of people and see their humanity when, when they suddenly become human again, um, it's very liberating uh, to, 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 to me who, who is racked with imperfections and fail every day to live up to my own ideals. And, and what you learn from... And, and from my heroes in Newark is this power of grace, of uh, mercy, of of being easy on yourself and on others. Um, th- that that's also needed in our civic space, and it becomes empowering to you as an individual. That despite my imperfections, despite my um, inadequacies, that I too can play a major role in transforming the world um, that I see around me. You know, I don't. Um I don't interview politicians. Like I actually, I was I was trying to think this morning. I I don't think I've I don't interview sitting politicians. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think like I think maybe in the early early years I I did I, I interviewed J- Jack Danforth, Senator John Danforth, but not when you know after he was in the Senate, and um, and I think I interviewed people in the early years when we were under pressure to be more newsy. Um, uh, and, but the reason I don't do it is it's not because I think um, uh, politicians aren't necessary or, you know, or evil or shallow, uh, but because I don't think um, politicians can 
I don't think I don't think politicians are in a position where they feel like they can have a revelatory searching conversation or also not just admit imperfection um, or frailty, but we don't let people change or change their minds or say, I was wrong about that. Whereas in we know in life, like, you know, the, the only people worth knowing, the wise people in our lives, we've seen them evolve. Um, I, I experience you as somebody who is searching as a human being. I, I wonder um, how you... Do you, you know, is, when maybe, maybe you are part of a new generation that is, and which is true across our society now. We're having to remake all these old forms. I mean, how, how do you live with, in this thing we've done to the profession you've chosen? Well, I, I, so first of all, I hope you're right about the, the, our evolving politics. I really hope that, um, we, we are going to see, more vulnerability in our politics, that we're going to see more people willing to talk about their own evolution. I, I mean, I just do hope that, that those dialogue does come. I don't know. We're in such a new political space where you're seeing the fracturing of the news media, snippets and tweets and sound bites um, uh, and, and memes. Uh, I, I don't know how this space is all going to uh, f- sort of settle out. But I do know there, there are mediums that I'm enjoying that weren't here five or ten years ago. This being one of them, podcast. Yeah. But but the thing, uh, the the best thing for this happened to me, has been being uh, broken time and time again. My Newark years. Every time I thought I was getting a stride or a swagger, um, something something would just happen that would break me or humiliate me or were were somehow, it was a city that would bring out my weaknesses. Um, and uh, uh, and my fears, and then give me a chance to to, to, to grow and, and and transform them into strengths. And um, you know that's why I, I don't want to live anyplace else, frankly, because of of the, the rawness of of my city um, that still um, so stretches me and exposes me, frankly, um, and helps me in, along my own personal journey. And um, where people, uh, now that they've known me for 20 years, uh, can get in my face with a, with a um, constructiveness, not all, often a <laughs> elegance, but at least a constructiveness that's really grateful. And, and if I think about the time, even since I've been a senator, where I've said the thing that my, you know, the, the politicians who are on my team wish I didn't say, you know, I can think of responses at moments to interviews. I still remember when uh, an interviewer asked me if I was gay and, and I, I just said that what was in my heart, which why does that matter? Mm-hmm. And could challenge them and say, I hope nobody's voting for me because they think I'm straight. Um, uh, or after Donald Trump uh, tweeted his first mean tweet at me and Chris Cuomo <laughs> said to me, uh, set it up, like, how do you respond? And I've even seen this used against me by progressives where I said, uh, or, or taken out of context where they just put the first part where I just say, you know, what's my response to Donald Trump? Donald Trump, I love you. I don't want you to be my president, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to make you make me hate you. And mm-hmm. and so I, I, I'm hoping that I, I that in my political career, I never get so um, full of myself that I'm afraid to take risks or afraid 
to to expose myself and my my frailty because we're all more fragile than we let on. We're all just trying to get this right. We're all we all know that those feelings that we that I've had that Newark has gifted me were. You know, when you get into a shower and you're hurting so much on the inside that you turn the water as hot as you possibly can, hoping that the pain on the outside distracts you from your heartbreak and agony. Or when you define courage not as the big speech or the big campaign, but just that voice that somehow gets you out of bed after a day of pain or shame um, or embarrassment. And somehow you have the courage just to get up, put your clothes on and face a new day. And I just think that that kind of um, realness that makes you, that people don't realize it makes you so relatable. <laughs> it, it makes you, a king does not inspire me because of his highest heights. He inspires me because he struggled as a family man. He struggled with his own personal weaknesses. Yeah. He, ha- he encountered hate, not from just... No, and that's it's true of all the. It's true of every single person we call a saint or put up yes. on a pedestal. Yes, Mother Teresa was depressed, right? Yes, that makes her more inspiring. Yes, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I keep, I keep, you know, thinking back to, you know, one of the things you've said, which which feels consonant to me with your, with your personality and your drive, because you are driven, right? And that is also what makes you a good politician. You said, you know. This is, you know, you very, you rarely, in what I've seen, confess to being frustrated with people. But you say you're frustrated when you see how difficult it is to get people to take relatively simple steps proven to make a difference. And you're saying, I'm not asking them to take a freedom ride or march against club and gas wielding state troopers, but or storm beaches in Normandy, but to take small, increased steps of service. Um, that, along with others doing the same, could make a significant difference. And you know, I read that, and then I thought, but I think this. You know, dwelling on why it is so, why people feel so dis, so unemboldened, right? So discouraged. And, you know, you also tell a story about your father, who clearly is just such a hero to you. Sorry, I used that word. But, uh, you know, a person who said never, I think you said never met a stranger. Um, Faced so many, you know, had, had so much courage and learning in his life. And he came, was it he came to see you? Maybe when you were yeah. first living in Newark and he looked around and he said, all this work, advancement and progress, yet a kid like I was faces more challenges today than ever. How could it come to this? And I think that's because, again, partly because of the narrative that 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 that. That that story of our time, which it also has reality, is better told. Uh, that's how a lot of people feel about, as you say, just why it's so hard to take small steps because it feels like they won't matter. Yeah. So my my dad, those words that you just repeated are the words that most haunt me uh, from my father. Of all the things he said to me in my life, this man who had such a spirit of positivity about him. Yeah. Um, to anguish that a child born like him, black, poor, to a single mother in a segregated environment, how so many of my kids when I was mayor in Newark were being born, that he worried that, and the data, unfortunately, much of the data holds true for his statement. He said, I worried that a kid born like this would be better off being born in 1936 than, and I think he said that to me in like 2014, and, um, uh, uh, excuse me, 2004. Uh, it, it, so I... I it, 
you know, that hurts me that we are in a society right now where people don't realize, I think, even sort of the erosion of, you know, social mobility is actually a, an, an indice. It's a measurable index and in how other countries are out-Americaning us. Because if you were going to be born poor... <laughs> Out-Americaning. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that my dad's generation... Absent maybe if you were a minority, but if you want to be born on the planet Earth, the best place to be born uh, was was America because you could get out of poverty. Well, now there's other countries that are that are taking that title away from us. Um, I could go through a lot of these indices that mm-hmm. are painful, but this is the problem: is people allow their inability to do everything to undermine their determination to do something, and they underestimate the power of one small action, and and how. You know, I talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson to confirm this. You know, when you look at the night sky, these stars in the sky, you, they're millions of light years away. And that means it takes the light um, millions of years to, to travel before you see it. And and since the time now that you're seeing that star, the star itself has died out in many cases. And so you're literally seeing something as if it's not there because energy, warmth, light that you give off goes on in perpetuity. And I know this, and I tried to trace it in the book that you mentioned that I wrote in 2015, that you know, I could point specifically to people who made a decision that that small action or one action they did you know, ripples throughout time and space. I didn't know this when I first met John Lewis, but later by tracing my own family history, I found out that those marchers on that Edmund Pettus Bridge between Selma and Montgomery, they, there, was a, there was a lawyer sitting at home comfortable in New Jersey watching TV. And if you remember that day, or some people might remember who remember this, they broke into uh, some movie and sh- uh, yeah. a major newscast. About so, the trial at Nuremberg. Yes. Yeah. And showed the marchers getting beaten by billy clubs, gassed. Yeah. And that this guy said he was so disturbed that he went to work the next day and said to his partner, Leo, we got to go to Alabama. And Leo laughed because he said... We can't afford a ticket. We're a startup business. We we just can't afford that. Mm-hmm. And in essence, the two men decided that they would do the best they could with what they had where they were, called around to see who might need a little bit of legal work they could give for civil rights activists. They met a woman named Lee Porter, who's now 92 years old. Back then, she was the head of the Fair Housing Council in northern New Jersey in the 60s. She's still head of the Fair Housing Council today. And she said, I desperately need lawyers. A few years later, they get handed a case file that is my parents, Mom, Car- Carrie and Carolyn Booker. And they, they were the ones that helped to organize the sting operation that had me move into a town. Okay. So think about this chain of chain reaction. A marcher on a bridge, and they weren't successful. They failed that day to get to Montgomery. Yeah. But just by that action, they unleashed a light that jumped a thousand miles away and changed the heart of one lawyer on a couch in New Jersey who would then go on and change the outcomes for generations yet unborn, me. That's the power every single day. Um, uh, uh, that we have to, to, to put energy into this world. And to think that we have to be a president or a senator or the mayor of a town to effectuate that kind of change. One of my favorite stories I told in the book was about the guy who lived in these high-rise, built subsidized housing next to a vacant lot which had been taken over by drug dealers and was, it, was an eyesore and a problem, attraction. To, to, to lots of problems in the neighborhood. And one day, this elderly man gets a stimulus check in the mail during the Bush administration. And instead of banking it or doing the kind of things that a lot of me and my friends might have done, 
he goes to Home Depot and buys rake, bags, and a lawnmower and just goes into the drug dealer's territory. People were afraid for him and just starts cutting the grass. And eventually, over months, he makes it look like the White House lawn. And the drug dealers just picked up and left. And he became a hero in the community, changed the experience of a neighbor, changed the atmosphere and the energy of the building, uh, stimulated more organizing, tenant organizing in the building. He just created this chain reaction. I could go through stories that I've learned just in Newark about the guy on the way to work who, instead of complaining about the graffiti in a, under an, an overpass, and we all have this choice to make every day of our lives to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. This guy's just started every day, bought some spray paint of his own, paint cans, would stop for five, 10 minutes and overpaint some, some graffiti and kept doing it until it just caught on. Hmm. And, and, and his irrational act of love, civic love, changed the behavior of other people. Hmm. I, I can give you so many stories of heroes in Newark that evidence that doing a small action radiates light into this universe and illuminates darkness. I think um, something that I keep I keep thinking about as I as I read you and hear you also is um, having a sense of like how change ripples and how long change takes like the arc of change as opposed to uh, well you know there and 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 this is a very American thing too and you're a very American person like there's a line. Uh, in your book, in my first year in office, I was achieving little of the transformative change I sought. Right, which is which is right, which is an American way to think about it. Yes, um, I mean, how could it not? I got elected. The world's supposed to change, right. and I've been here a year. <laughs> um, because that also that I, I think it's that would be a new way of seeing and experiencing. Our presence in the world, it, it, you know, if it was just so much more expansive than what what accomplishments you could hit within a year or even within 10 years or within your lifetime. But the challenges, I think one thing we're seeing now is how vast the challenges are. And so there's all this progress made 50 years ago in civil rights, and then some of us not all of us, some of us have been living with the reality of that unfinished change for a long time. Some of us are just waking up to it. And that also makes people despair, like how much is not there yet. Right. Well, well, Mother Teresa, you know this quote by her when she was asked by a journalist, how does she measure success? And she says, you know, I wasn't called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. And I worry uh, about a, a lack of faithfulness, which in myself has been shaken, has fallen, um, where I've lost faith. And faithfulness is not just a spiritual s- way of being. It's it's getting up and continuing the work, even if you can't see um, um, to how that work will will change this almost seemingly impossible reality. And and I worry about the lack of faithfulness in this country's ideals. You know, Angela Davis said. Um, in a world with so much injustice, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing her, it's not enough to be not racist. You need to be anti-racist. And in other words, we can't take comfort in living in our own world that's often disconnected from people who are struggling with opioid addiction or yeah. depression or yeah. what have you and saying, I'm not contributing to the problems. I'm a good person. When, when King's harshest words 
were often not for the white racist uh, that was had his words, as King would say, dripping with interposition and nullification, but for the good people who do nothing. As he said so eloquently, what we have to repent for in this day and age is not just the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And I'm very happy, and, I, and again, I confess to you this imperfection, where a part of me, yeah, I'm rejoicing in all the organizing and marching that's going on now under this president. But the part where I, 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 I can't help but sometimes get angry, and I confess to that, was, wait a minute, under President Obama, hmm. we had environmental toxins that were, I've been to places that would bring tears to your eyes to see the injustice people are living under. Uh, under President Obama, we had a reality where a criminal justice system was shackling pregnant women torturing children. And I use that word purposefully because human rights organizations internationally say what Americans do by putting children in solitary confinement is torture. Uh, the, 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 the murders going on of transgender women, I could go through the injustices and how rampant they were uh, uh, in our country under our former president, but we had we had gotten to, and I'll use that word again, to a level of tolerance right, of, of right. levels of injustice. That that are that should never be the case, and so the faithfulness says that if I am here today because folks were willing to give their lives up to to establish universal public education and workers' rights, I, I don't even think twice about having a weekend off or or having workers' conditions in certain factories. But but if I'm benefiting, if I'm reaping the harvest of those folks. Who many of them who weren't experiencing those conditions themselves, but still thought it worthy uh, to sacrifice. What what is my best measure of contribution to issues that may not be affecting me directly? They definitely affect you indirectly, but may not. Affect, what am I doing to right the wrong? So when when people ask you when you say things like that, and um, uh, you know, I imagine some some of them one will say um, in a, like in a civic forum, maybe not a. A, not in a journalistic form, but like, okay, so how do I begin, right? What do I do? What do you say? I, I say one act, one small act. Um, um, if you do the things, same things you did last year and you expect there to be a different America this year, you're wrong. And even, and I usually t- give people the, 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 the deference of saying, I know we all worked hard in 2016, but if we think change is going to happen, if we do the same things in 2018 that we did in 2016, you're fooling yourself. But, but it doesn't have to be a grand change. We know those people who know aeronautics, one small course correction, a minute course correction over a period of time creates a dramatic change in outcome mm. and destination. Mm. And so I always say for me as a United States senator, I'm busy as heck. I still take time to mentor kids in my neighborhood. And I've learned that as for all the children that I mentor that I'll be taking to see you know, movies like Black Panther – they have changed my life more than I've changed theirs. They, I, my balance sheet is way out of whack for the more I've tried to give and, and what I've received from it. And 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 so I always say, do something different in your life, no matter how small it is. And maybe you don't think you have time, but I can tell you right now, donating money so that a program has a little bit more money to do another mentor match, that changes an outcome. My mm-hmm. dad got to where he is right now because someone who was not his family member uh, took him in and took him under their arm, under their wing. And so that that's the thing that, that, again, we can never underestimate And this truth that no matter who you are, the biggest thing you do in any day 
is most often going to be a small act of kindness, decency, or love. Um, and I, I'm curious about how you sustain your faithfulness. Um, very practically, I mean, like, you know, I see you on Twitter. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter less than I used to be. I, I, um, I remember uh, I was reading a, a journalist uh, writing about you a couple years ago. He tweets with something approaching the frequency of his own heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and um, clearly you're a person, you know, gifted with a, a great deal of energy and, as you say, a lot of, um, uh, you know, gifts that you take seriously. But how do you, you know, how do you stay whole and how do you renew this energy and renew what you call your faithfulness? Well, I, I try to, 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 and I'm especially more conscious the older I get, um, to, to engage in spiritual practice that is re- renewing, re- that gives me renewal. And so I'll wake up in the morning and I will meditate and I will, my, my, the, the fundamental pillars of my morning routine that make me feel great during the day, I know what they are. They involve exercise. Um, they involve meditation. They involve study um, uh, of something not what my staff gives me to read for such yeah. a hearing. So, like, what are you studying these days or what have you recently been reading or um, learning from? Well, there's two things. Mm-hmm. One, I'm studying for, for practical purposes. Every morning now, I put in at least... 10 minutes of Spanish study. Okay. I spent weeks in Costa Rica because it, it, it uh, this August I did, uh, because it opens up uh, what I love most, which is ultimately the thing that keeps me going is human connection. Hmm. That That's what is the most re- rejuvenating uh, to me and spiritually empowering to me is uh, human connection with, with, uh, with folks that are not... Uh, helping me with my political career or donors or not to, okay. not to cast not to cast aspersion towards some of the great people I've met that are in those categories that have been gifts to my life who care more about me as a person than, than as an elected leader but you know my neighborhood you know going to mi- visit miss Rosalie Powell who's a woman that's been bedridden for my as long as I know her but even though she's confined to that physical space her personality uh, uh elevates above that bed and her family and her kids or, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Dante, who's in grade school. I mean, walking around my neighborhood, visiting with family and friends, um, finding real human connection. And again, why do I study Spanish? It's because whether it's in my professional job where I can sit with farm workers and talk about or airline workers who really don't, because of our fissured economy now, don't actually work for the airlines, but these outsourced companies and make uh, so little money because they live in my neighborhood that they can't afford the basics and have to rely on food stamps to be able to talk to somebody in their language. That mm-hmm. that line of that spiritual line of connection when you can ha- have that kind of connection, something that it fortifies me. I really like that learning Spanish as a spiritual practice. Yes, no, that's and, good. Yeah, and you feel you you feel empowered when I overcome. My worst grades in 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 high school uh, were or in Spanish, and 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 uh, you do get a sense of achievement when you get mastery over, you know, mm. something like that. And it's and it's a good way to sort of. I find in the morning I started a new spiritual practice this year that you're going to laugh because it doesn't sound like a spiritual practice, but it's been such a gift to me. And I actually learned it from listening to a podcast to try it. But 
I make my bed in the morning now, which is something my mom, if she's <laughs> listening to this, will, will, my mom has this saying where she says, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. And, uh, and she, Okay, so how is making your bed a spiritual practice? Well, first of all, <laughs> my mom is astonished with me because she's like, you're a United States senator. I couldn't get you to mow the lawn, make your bed, <laughs> clean your room. Um, but why is, why is making your bed a spiritual practice? It's because days, life is often about little bits of momentum. And when you start your day... Uh, making your bed, it, it, it's that one of those things that gives you momentum in your day. And coming home, to, I find, to a made-up bed, there's something about that that is uh, a teeny little gift. There's something in that. And so when I can get up in the morning, make my bed, sit in meditation, do a little bit of study, get an exercise in, and that's when I open the door to the world and go mm -hmm. out, with certain pillars like that, I feel more momentum at my back, more energy, more sense of, it's small, but more sense of, which we all need uh, senses of self-worth, sense of things that are, give our self-esteem more of a better foundation. And look, and I have to say this, stopping practices that used to erode my uh, self-esteem. I am one of those emotional eaters, you know? Yeah, you we've to talked bed, about that, yeah. Yeah, it's been my one of my addictions in life. Uh, when you go to bed, when you come home feeling bad and you do things that in some ways compound that. I used to joke that when I'd have a tough day being mayor, I would go home and to a sensual embrace, uh, a menage a trois, so to speak, with uh, with Ben and Jerry. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, you know, but uh, two pints in, and it's nice how they make them in convenient serving size containers. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, my self-esteem would crash. I would feel horrible with these. I'm now a vegan, but back then with the, what the, all that lactose does to your system. Um, and so, you know, that's why I say the wisdom of age, even though I still feel like that 20-year-old uh, moving on Martin Luther King Boulevard, but um, that to do the things that add to your self-esteem, add to your self-worth, and often they're very small but that self-care in a world that is going to do everything it can to do two things to you in the day. One, bombard you with anxiety, and the other one is distract you. This world is so eloquently designed to distract you from your life mission. And that's mm -hmm. why another spiritual practice I do is just values clarification and goal clarification. What do I, what do I, what are the values I'm, I'm, I stand for or be willing to fall for and die for? And, and, and then what are, what am I, where am I going? You know, life is not just about getting into the river and getting caught in the current, yeah, current events. Except you never, I mean, you've lived long enough now to know that you can decide where you're going and, and you'll, have to, <laughs> you'll have to revisit that and see that you went someplace else, not in the not too distant future. <laughs> right. But, and, 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 and by the way, that's the best way to make God laugh. You know, the saying is to make yeah. plans for yourself. <laughs> and, and God has been having a ball with my life. But I think the good thing for me is that when you when you values are like rocks, they can't move when you decide right. sort of what your governing values are and might have evolved over the years. Um, but uh, and then you set short term goals like I'm going to get to, you know, memorize this many Spanish words this month or, um, you know, uh, get this piece of legislation uh, uh, undone. Um, those give you little short term uh, for me, writing down those kind of goals give you gives you continues to give you a sense of momentum, but more than that are gifts to your self-esteem. Uh, mm. You know, this month mm. I'm going to I'm going to sign up for a mentoring organization or I'm going to try to get five friends to sign up to be mentors. The, whatever, those are things that I think that are gifts to your self-esteem and ultimately make a difference in your life and the lives of others beyond what you can perceive. I think that's really helpful. And do you um, so um, do you not tweet? 
until after the meditation, the exercise? I, when I was mayor, I was out of control and, and I allowed the, the, the social media to dictate to me more than I dictated rules for it. And, um, and social media can be very mean platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there's so much value in what people push my way, I get articles, ideas, um, especially when I was mayor, I, I, my, my office loved it because I could create great more accountability in Newark because I would find out about water main breaks before a water department. Yeah, no, I was, I was watching that sometimes. And that was amazing. You were, I mean, that was like a whole different, like being a public servant and then having that direct instantaneous connection with people. And, right. yeah. and a mayor is yeah. a very different job than a senator because uh-huh. I would be getting into bed checking my Twitter to make sure that nobody needed help. I would get out of bed. Mm. Somebody called me and said, I've been waiting on the street corner for an hour for a police officer after this accident. Right. I'd jump out of bed and go to that street corner. As a senator, you know, I, I always joke that my chief of staff said this to me during Hurricane Sandy when we were discussing running for Senate. He, he says, as I was in the command center three days straight, and he was looking at me and said, you know, Corey, if you were a United States senator right now, you'd be in the way because <laughs> you don't have sort right. of com- command decisions. So now I, I use social media. I, I don't let, I don't, I sort of create a protection. I, I recently started at the end of last year, another sort of, not a spiritual practice, but a, but a practice of moving my electronics out of the bedroom. So when okay. I go into that bedroom, um, sleep is such a sacred thing that we, as Americans, have this weird sense of destructive competition where you come to work and say, I got four hours sleep. Four, <laughs> you slacker, I got three. Right, like, right. it's like a right. terrible race yeah. to the bottom. Um, I want to be one of those people now that brags, I got seven full hours of sleep last night and I feel great. And mm-hmm. we as a society have got to stop doing this to ourselves where we don't understand that, as my uncle says, sleep is a weapon. Mm. Um, I just, this, I, this came to mind a minute ago when you were talking about your mother. One thing I loved uh, just about your mother that I saw somewhere that when you were sworn into the Senate, she said, don't get carried away with all of this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, She's this woman that is not, it's very hard for me to impress her with um, the things that other people are often impressed with. Like here I was, you know, it was my junior in high school. I am like a preseason high school All-American football player. Yeah. You know, I'm being you treated like the, Went to you know, Stanford on your football scholarship. Yeah. And yeah. my mom could not care less. And she's like, well, you got to be in calculus. <laughs> and she'd be so angry with that. Yeah. So um, it didn't really impress her until I, she finally got it through her head that I was not going to get into Stanford because of our 4.0, 1600 uh, <laughs> GPA and SAT scores, but a 4.0 and 1600 uh, uh, yards per carry and receiving yards. Right. So I, um, I think we just we just have a few more minutes here. I, I, d- I did want to say I meant to say so. We I, I think circling back to love is 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 makes sense um, um, because I. You said you've you've taken some flack for using that word, but I I experience that word to be surfacing everywhere, and I experience people to be using that word and you know claiming it in very unexpected places, and um, you know there is of course like Van Jones with a love army, and there's revolutionary love, and you know there there's so there are actual things starting, but but I also just feel like it's everywhere, and it's very interesting and. And as much as, um, as much as you know, you can also say that ours is an age of anger. Like I wonder, um, 
if when when people look back a hundred years, you know, will this will this will the 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 resurrection of the L word or like us claiming this as a species, um, will this be something that is being seeded now that can be seen? I I hope so. When I did the book tour in twenty sixteen for United. Um, it was the thing that most people came up to me and talked to me about after a discussion on a stage yeah. was that this is what they're yearning for yeah. and, and a sense of connection to other Americans that transcends things that seem to be dividing us, a sense of yearning in this country for an understanding that we're all in this together. There's themes of love that I uh, and again, I might be selecting for those folks who might want to come to hear me speak anyway. But I've now gotten to the point where I'm just uh, going to be unapologetic about it. I don't know if it's a good political strategy, but mm-hmm. I believe that this um, that this this shift from a country that aspires to tolerance to back to a country that aspires towards love is is a defining moment in our in our in our country in our culture, and at a time of rampant demonization. Um, uh, in our political speech, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that this might be the, the time where we see um, uh, a, a, a renewal of, I hope, um, what I think is best about this country. Well, and don't you think that the demonization that has become, you know, kind of routine, like it's in the fabric of uh, many of our spaces, and the fact that we have actually named and called out hate and honor it and take it really seriously, right? I mean, honor it in terms of taking it seriously. Do you think that I've, to me that's what opens up this space where uh, you have to talk about something that is as big? Yeah, y- yes. Uh, um, so, look, Shiva, the, as you know, I've studied a bit of Hinduism, uh, the god of destruction, is a revered god because it's after that destruction, that uh, new growth and, and uh, a new seeds of, of, of endless, limitless potential come forward. And I, I think we're in a, a, a Shiva-like time right now where, where things are getting bad and getting dark and where, where hatred is being exposed and revealed in a more raw form. And I, my faith traditions, at least, and, and my faith perspective make me believe that this tough years that we have ahead of us, I, I really do believe that they might be the, the opportunity might lie within that for um, a, a renewal of the best of uh, of uh, sort of a, a new civic gospel hmm. uh, um, uh, and a gospel of love that that will that will come into our public life. Um, and I don't mean that just by from politicians. I mean our public life, all of us, and how we're relating to each other within this society. Um. I want to, um, there's this beautiful paragraph you wrote about Virginia Jones, um, her, how you understood her definition of hope. Um, she said, for Ms., you said, for Mrs. Jones, hope was relational. It didn't exist in the abstract. Hope confronts. It does not ignore pain, agony, or injustice. It is not a saccharine optimism that refuses to see, face, or grapple with the wretchedness of reality. You can't have active hope without despair because hope is a response. Hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. I want to ask you, like, right now, you know, today, this week, not not in big lofty terms, but very concretely, like, what makes you despair and where are you finding hope? You know, the, the new job I have has taken me to visit places in America that um, 
that I, I, I didn't even know about. I almost feel ashamed that I didn't know about it. In a hearing today with the head of a hog producing company, I talked to him about um, these, this African-American community in North Carolina and, and Duplin County that um, just are suffering from respiratory diseases. The value of their land has gone on, has gone down. They've been in the, uh, just awful. They can't open their windows or run their air conditioning. Um, seeing more and more of that, sitting in a women's prison and listening to women tell me about the, the tragic choice between buying sanitary products or calling their, their child that they've been separated from and knowing, uh, I still remember a despairing moment when I asked the warden in a Danbury women's correctional facility, what percentage of the women here are, are victims, survivors of sexual trauma? And this tough warden close to retirement looks at me suddenly with pain in her eyes and says, about 95% of these women, um, that we put so many hurt people uh, in, in environments that just compound the pain and the mm -hmm. injury um, that don't reflect who we are and uh, the values that I know are American. These all, all of these things make me despair, make me angry, make me, make my, my heart weep. Um, and, and then I have to remember, you know, I have to remember that we come out of this wretchedness, that, that this is our history as, as much as history of America's history of greatness and towering heights of achievement. It has a consistent also history of just hateful, mean, hmm. wretched, awful things. But yet we are people, as Ms. Jones would, would teach me, a woman that had her son murdered in the lobby of the building in which I would eventually live, who never left those buildings, was the first one of the first families to move in. And she and I were two of the last people to live before they were imploded. Um, sh she was a person that always made that decision that despite how awful and agonizing life can be to you, despite how much it can break you, um, uh, it's at those moments I will not only choose hope, but be an instrument of hope. And and that's the only salvation um, that we've ever had in this country is ordinary Americans under the worst circumstances, um, uh, despairing circumstances, worse than I'll ever experience or witness, who, who've decided to choose hope, to be agents of hope. Thank you so much, Cory Booker. This was a pleasure and... Uh... I, f I feel like we could keep talking, but I'm very grateful for this. And um, yeah, I do hope we also will meet in person one of these days. I do as you. And, and forgive me, just now that we're, we're done with it, I can yeah. I can say something that might be interpreted as being obsequious. But um, <laughs> you, you are a, a source of energy and light to me. Um, when I am down, I cannot tell you how many interviews with people I would have never heard of had you not brought them into my life uh, by, by your interviews and, and the spiritual testimony that you bring forward in this regular basis, it's like going to church for me, <laughs> uh, like, 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 uh, my childhood, it, 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 it's shaping to my own spiritual journey and so nurturing and nourishing, uh, to my soul. And I just want to say uh, profoundly, I wish I could hug you right now. I just say, <laughs> thank you for, uh, thank you for doing what you do. And, uh, igniting in this country at a time that we need it, um, a wisdom and, and light. Uh, it is, it is tremendous, the impact you're having and oh. I, and it's beyond, I think what you know. Oh, well, I'm very honored and my whole team is listening. And so like, I know this is amazing for us to hear. So thank you. Thank you.
Thank you very much. All right, we'll let you know what's happening with this, and um, you can tweet about it. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Trust me, I will be. I mean, this is my, my, my staff knows I'm a, the rare times I get to go on shows or whatever to people I, I listen to so regularly. I'm yeah. a, such a fanboy, so I will be. I will okay. be. This is a highlight for me. There's right. two great things that have happened to me in 2018. That uh, uh, the one is I got made fun of on Saturday Night Live, and I got to be on your podcast. <laughs> okay, well, that is high praise. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. You have a great rest of your day. Blessings to you. Thank you. Blessings yeah. to you as well. Bye bye. Bye bye.